This passage is from Mark 3:20, verse 34. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an internal sin. He said this because they were saying, He has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother, my brother, and my sister. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Dan. We're looking at the Gospel of Mark, um, the shortest of the Christian Gospels of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And based on the recollections um, of Peter, one of the first of the disciples, a fisherman, uh, uneducated, illiterate, his is the simplest uh, language in the New Testament. His Greek is the simplest. Clearly an uneducated man, but a man of action. And he records what he saw Jesus do. There's no speculation. There's no attempt to interpret Jesus. Peter just says, I saw him do this, and then he did this, and then he said this, and then he did this. And it's a very direct and vivid portrait of of uh, Jesus, unadorned, and a great place to start when you're thinking about who Jesus is. We've seen Jesus be baptized to begin his ministry, going out to John the Baptist, being baptized and receiving the Holy Spirit, and then immediately going out into the desert to be tempted. We've seen him begin to teach. He began to go to the synagogues and teach with extraordinary power so that the people were amazed. He begins to reinterpret the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there is a, a promised figure, the Messiah, who's called the Son of Man. And Jesus claims that title for himself and begins to explain what it means. We've seen him redefine what it means to be part of the people of God. Jesus didn't just stay with the teachers of the law and the people who considered themselves clean and holy. He met and ate and traveled with people outside who were not considered holy, who didn't follow the law, who were considered sinful, even traitors to Israel. 
And last Sunday, we saw Jesus fulfill or fill out the complement of his disciples, those who are going to become the apostles, the founders of the Christian church. So Jesus' ministry is beginning to achieve a momentum. He's got the proto-church there, the 12 disciples representing the 12 tribes of Israel, the holy people of God. They are now with him. Israel has begun to notice. We saw last Sunday how, challenged by his authority and teaching, the teacher of the law began to plot to kill him because he was a threat to their power. And so what we have here is this new community, this new group of people, a holy space, a kingdom with a new king, Jesus. And the world is beginning to notice it and react against it. It does not like what it sees in this new kingdom. And that's what you see at the beginning here. Verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Last week, we saw the teachers of the law begin to plot. Now his own family is reacting. You remember, this is Mary and Joseph and Jesus' brothers and sisters. They must have thought he was a lunatic. Well, they said right there, he's out of his mind. Remember, Israel is a land under occupation. You've got Roman soldiers everywhere. Jesus is beginning to be noticed He is beginning to stand out. The teachers of the law, that is, the leaders of Israel, are are plotting against him. And we saw last week they're plotting with the Herodians, that is, the people of King Herod, the puppet king put in power by the Romans. If you're in an occupied country, if you're surrounded by oppressors, you don't want to stand out. You don't want to be noticed. You're going to get squashed. And clearly his family is worried about that. You know, um, a couple of years ago, I was in Cuba, visiting the Christian church there. I went to a number of different churches around Cuba. And we in America have no idea what it means to be oppressed. You know, if we are upset about the slightest thing, the first thing is a protest and screaming and shouting. Look at all the blogs. Look at all the protests around the country right now. The... The American response to oppression is to stand up and scream and shout. It's not until you go to a real place of oppression. Cuba is run by the military. Everything is controlled by them. Everything you can buy and sell. You can't even move your house or sell your house. You can't start a business. You can't do anything. You have to give your food first to the military and they sell it. And the Christian church is there, but they're very much aware You've got to be careful. Well, that was exactly what was happening in Israel. This was an occupied place, a dangerous place. And Jesus was beginning to say and do things. This new community that he was creating was beginning to say and do things that was getting him noticed. Verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, 
By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So remember, we saw these last week. The teachers of the law were the religious elite. They were the ones that upheld the values of Israel, who gathered around the temple, who devoted them life, their life to trying to fulfill the law. And they, did, they were upset by Jesus. They're planning to kill him. You know, they're calling him now Beelzebub. This is uh, another name for Satan. In fact, Beelzebub was one of the old Philistine gods, the god of flies. And so in the Israelite mind, this is another name for demonic power. And they're claiming here that Jesus is using demonic power to do what he's doing. That that's the source of his authority, of his healing, of his driving out of demons, demons from possessed people. They're claiming that he's a sorcerer. Using demonic power is sorcery. And under the law, that is, the penalty for that is death. So they, right here, are after Jesus' life. This is not a trivial encounter. This is not a dispute or a debate about theology. This is an attempt to libel Jesus and get him killed. So Jesus called them over to him. <laughs> Thank you. That is a servant heart right there. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? Parables. This will become a theme, a pattern for Jesus. In fact, it's what Jesus probably is most well known for. Why does Jesus speak in parables? Well, the first part is he is in an occupied kingdom. And so parables are a way of speaking, not quite in code, but something close to code. Something that you have to think about and dwell on. A parable is like a jewel or a seed that is planted. It has to grow in your mind and be unpacked for all the truth in it to be savored. And so although he's speaking right here to these teachers of the law, to enemies, he's also speaking to his people here. He's talking about the kingdom. He's talking about this clash between his kingdom, his people, and all those that are gathering outside. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Jesus is using power. He's claiming authority to teach, to heal, and to drive out demons. And as he points out here, if this was demonic power, why would demonic forces, why would the kingdom of Satan, why would the powers that oppose God use that power to drive out demons? It's illogical. The power that Jesus is using is clearly not demonic because it is claiming people in God's name. It is advancing God's kingdom. And he makes that explicit. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up, 
then he can plunder the strong man's house. It might not be immediately obvious, but Jesus there is quoting from Isaiah. Isaiah says, can plunder be taken from warriors or captives be rescued from the fierce? But this is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children. I will save. And then all men will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. So Jesus and the teachers of the law surely would have known this passage. Jesus is saying, this is not just a matter of preaching, of talking. This is not just a matter of discussing theology. This is a clash, a conflict. The kingdom of God in the person of the king, Jesus Christ, is advancing. And Jesus Christ claims everybody and everything. There is no place in all of creation that will not be contended for and is contended for by God. And he will win. And there is no power out there that is more powerful than him. There is no power on heaven or on earth that can oppose the advance of God's kingdom. And therefore, all of God's people will be saved. The kingdom, beginning with this little seed, is going to grow. It's going to advance. And nothing can stand against it. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. This worries Christians, by the way. This is one of those verses that people get nervous and frightened about. Because Jesus is saying that there is something that cannot be forgiven. Something that will forever separate us from God. And that's a frightening notion. Remember what he's saying here. The context. The kingdom of God has been planted and is beginning to grow. And those outside who are opposing are saying... That is not the kingdom of God. That is the devil. That is an impure spirit. That is demonic activity, not God's activity. And Jesus is saying, that is what is blasphemy. That which opposes the kingdom of God, the spread of the kingdom of God. So what does it mean to us? What does it mean to Christians? Eugene Peterson said, Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is like someone who's sitting on a branch for support and then cuts it off. Cuts off the very thing that supports them. I did this, by the way, when I was a kid. My dad and I were trying to chop down this dead tree at the bottom of my garden. And just to upset him, I stood on a branch, kind of sat on a branch, and I started cutting to see what he would say. And he thought that I was a maniac. I was not cutting all the way through. But a person who would do such a thing 
is a maniac. What does it mean to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? It's like somebody who's trapped in a fire and then hides from the firemen who are trying to rescue. It likes being, it's like being on a sinking ship and saying, no, the lifeboats are sinking, not the ship. Or the lifeguards are trying to drown us. Or the thrown lifeline is going to strangle you. It is the deliberate identification of that which is holy, that which is saving you, that which is the only way out, the only hope, and saying, no, that's the problem. That is evil. That's trying to kill you, trying to kill me. There are no accidents. There is no misunderstanding. If you're worried about blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, then you're not blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. It is a deliberate misidentification. It's a deliberate act. It is to have seen that which is good, that which is of God, and then not just ignore it or withdraw your consent, but deliberately to oppose it, to define it as evil, to teach others that it is evil, to take sides against whatever it is. That is blasphemy. Let me try and tell a parable, because this is an image that I've always had since I became a Christian. Remember those old movies where they would send um, a diver down into the, the depths with the big brass diving helmet and the lead shoes and the hose going to the surface? Imagine that diver down at the bottom, and you're in a world of wonders down there. It's beautiful. And it's possible to imagine that tether being a little frustrating. You want to go a little further. You want to go a little deeper. You want to explore your own agenda. You want to be free from this tether. Now, that tether is bringing life and air from the surface down into the depths. It is the only way that you can survive down there. What an act of madness it would be to cut that hose. Now, inside your helmet and your suit, you have a little bit of air. For a moment, you would be free. You could go anywhere you wanted. There would be enough air to survive. But soon that air would thicken. And the, the joy and the wonder of the excitement would be replaced by lethargy. The vigor would be gone for your body. Instead of the world being exciting, you would get the first hint of fear and dread that the air is going to run out, that you're going to die down there. That the Bible says, is the human predicament, the human condition. We have cut ourselves off from our creator, the source of life, the source of breath. You know, in Greek and Hebrew, spirit means the breath of God. When we cut ourselves off from God's spirit, we have a little bit of life left in us, but not much. And any, every one of us is running down. Every one of us is going to die. That's where we are. Because we are not our own. We are God's creations, and he is our source, our life, and without him, we're all going to die, just like that diver. So who's Jesus in that picture? He would be someone who comes down from the surface 
and brings us a fresh connection, a fresh hose, a fresh helmet, who plugs us back to the source, to the life, to the breath that we need, and gives us an ongoing, eternal life so that we can continue. That's what Jesus is doing here. And he's saying blasphemy is not just the cutting of that hose, but when you see somebody coming with a fresh hose saying, no, that's poison. Turning what is the only hope into something to be feared, something that is evil, that is blasphemy. Rejecting God's spirit. Rejecting Jesus' gift of a reconnection with God. To be connected with God is to be part of this new spiritual family. And that's what Jesus talks about now. To be part of a family, a group of people, defined not by primarily their relationship of blood to each other, but their relationship to God, the shared breath of God, the shared spirit. Well, this is all good theology. What does it mean? What application does this have to you and I? How can we think about this? How can we use this insight? Well, here's a question. Are you spiritual? That's what the issue here is, by the way. Are you spiritually connected to God, who is spirit? Is that spirit not only connected to you, through the Holy Spirit, but alive in your life? Well, what does it look like to be spiritual, to be connected to God? Do you regularly breathe with God? That is, pray. Look to God for help, for counsel, for comfort. Spend time with God regularly in your daily life. How much do you pray? Prayer and our ability to pray, remember, is the gift that Christ gave us. He gave us his relationship with his Father so that we can join him in saying, Our Father. The prayer is the connection. Do you pray for yourself? Do you pray for friends and family? Do you pray for problem people in your life? By the way, that's an excellent exercise. If you've got a problem person in your life, somebody you can't dis- you at work or in your family that you really can't get along with or you've got a big problem with, instead of hating them, which is the human response, try praying for them. Try asking God for good things to be put in their life. It'll change the way you think about them. Are you involved in personal worship? and ministry, times of reflection, retreats? Are you cultivating this relationship? Um, If you've got a piece of paper, you should write this next part down. I'm going to give you a spiritual exercise. This is a good one to try. If you've never done this before, by the way, it it can be very surprising. It's It's a great diagnosis. In Galatians, which is one of Paul's letter to the, the group of Christians in Galatia, the Galatian church, 
he gives us a list of the fruit of the Spirit. That is, what does the Spirit bear in your life? What does it look like to have the Spirit in your life? And there are nine things. Love, joy, peace, forgiveness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you are connected to God through God's Holy Spirit, if the Spirit of God is at work in you, then those things should be growing in your life, bearing fruit. Well, are they? When was the last time you checked to know if you truly are a spiritual person? If you get a sheet of paper and you write nine columns across the top, and on each of those columns you put one of these nine, love, joy, peace, forgiveness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You put them all the way across the top of a sheet of paper. So you're creating nine columns. And then down each of those columns, write what do your relationships look like? Because Christianity is all about relationships. What is your relationship with God like? Is it growing in love? Is it growing in joy and in peace? And you can grade yourself. You can choose how you grade yourself. Is it good or bad? Is it getting better or getting worse? Give it a A, B, C, D, E, or F grade. Um, whatever you come up with, in each of those areas, is your relationship with God getting better or getting worse? How would you evaluate it? Next line down, your relationship with yourself. Are you happy? Are you joyful? Are you fearful or full of dread? Are you growing in gentleness? Each of these columns, write down what it looks like in your daily life, who you are. Next down, who is the significant or the most significant relationship in your life? Your spouse or your lover or whoever it is. How are you doing in that relationship with that person in terms of joy, peace, Forgiveness, kindness. Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Are you generous with that person or not? Consider your family, your father, your mother, your siblings. Consider your career, your relationship with your boss, with those that work with you, the, with those who work for you. You can expand it out. You can expand out your consideration of yourself. Think about your mind and your body and your soul. Are you doing anything to improve the, your mind? What about your soul and your worship life? What about your body in terms of fitness and health, bad habits, new skills? You can expand it as far as you want. Politics and political movements, your neighbors, your relationship with your money, with your property, with your possessions. And you'll have created a grid, a grid. And especially if you use some kind of coding system, say you write down good is blue and bad is red, you will see right there in front of you the areas of your life that are not growing 
or that are regressing or that you need to be praying about or working on. If the Holy Spirit is in your life, you should be bearing fruit in all these areas. And if you're not, then you have something to pray about. The promise of God is that if we pray in Jesus' name, he will intercede for us. And you will see things happening in your life that you could not have done by yourself. Remember what we're talking about here. We're not just talking about ideas or beliefs. We're saying that through the Holy Spirit, we are connected with the supernatural. That is, powers and potentialities beyond the natural world, beyond human ability, things that we cannot conceive of or comprehend. And that power is available to us because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrive. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mothers and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him, and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Remember, he's talking about Mary and Joseph. He's talking about his parents. And he's saying the new spiritual relationships that he has with his disciples are more important. In fact, replace the definition of family. That is a remarkable claim. What is Jesus saying? Why is Jesus saying that? He's saying that the connection of blood, the accident of birth, does not define who you are. Once you receive the Holy Spirit, you, along with the Holy Spirit, and with Jesus and the Father, are now a new family unit. We are invited into the divine family. That's what Jesus gives us. Not only his name and his salvation, but also access to his Father as our Father. You see it represented right here in this table. This is the family table of God. And Christians who have received the Holy Spirit are invited to the family table, which now becomes the definition of who we are. What does that mean? It means that when we can't do things for ourselves. You know, I just gave you a spiritual exercise. For some of us, just the idea of writing this stuff down is overwhelming. It's crippling to think about. We've got nothing. We're hollow inside. We're despairing. We're filled with fear and dread. Jesus knows that. And that's why he invites us to the table and feeds us. We are given a source of spiritual grace, spiritual food, a resource, an energy, a means of growth for free. And we are surrounded in the Christian church by a family that will support us. 
You know, one of the most difficult things in the world, I think, is to forgive people who are a pain, people who upset you, people who have betrayed you, people who do things to squash you or just to frustrate and stop you doing what you believe you need to be doing. And I'm convinced that under your own resources, certainly in my life, in my resources, it is impossible to forgive. My tendency is just to walk away. It's better to find a new friend than deal with all these problems. That's not true in the Christian church. If the Holy Spirit is in you, the Holy Spirit is also in everyone else in this room who's a Christian. And therefore, when we have problems with each other, when we have conflicts, when we upset each other, we're not just trying to restore the relationship under our, our own power if we try to forgive. The Spirit of God is at work in their life and in your life. And we can claim that. By the way, when you go to the table, if there's something in this room that you loathe, and probably there is, there's a lot of people here, watch them receive the Lord's Supper and try to loathe them then. You can't. Because they are revealed as a sinner who needs God's grace just as much as you. That's what it means to come to the table, by the way, to have the need of God's grace. And if God's grace is at work in their life, you can be confident that any move that you make to restore the relationship is going to be met by the Holy Spirit. And that's why the Christian church is your family. The people around you right now are going to be in your life, not just for the next 10, 20, 30 years, but for all eternity. That's the promise. And so the relationships you begin, as trivial as they may be, are going to grow and grow and grow. And they are worth investing in because they're going to grow. They are your future. We are the future together. We are worth the time and energy to get to know each other because we're going to be around forever. And we have each of us, the Holy Spirit, that is at work gluing us together, making us this new family, the family of God, making us a new creation in the world, a place of hope, a place that is connected to God, to grace, to forgiveness. Oh, and by the way, one last thought. What if what I'm saying is true? You know, some of you are listening to me and, oh, it's just yakety-yak, pastors going on. But what if it's true? What would you do if it's true? You know, every day I go to buy the paper in my corner and I see people standing in line to buy these lottery tickets and there's a bazillion of them and they spat out all these numbers and they spend 20, 30, 100 dollars. I've stood and watched them. And they're dreaming of riches coming into their life so they could change their life, so they could do something better. What if all those riches are in your life right now? A connection, not just with money, but with the resources of heaven. All the power that is. Cosmic power. What would you do if you knew today that the power of God was in what you're about to do? What new thing would you start? 
What new project? What new way of living? What new set of relationships? If it is true that the Holy Spirit is in us, we have access to resources we cannot begin to comprehend. All we have to do is to begin to step out in faith, and those resources will be there. Jesus is promising it. You are surrounded by people with those resources. We are filled with such energies we can't imagine. All we have to do is to be faithful, to trust, to believe, to step out in faith. And then we will be the Christian church witnessing Christ in the world. That's our heritage. That's our purpose and our future. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. We call ourselves Christians, and yet so often we live timid, small lives, depending on our own resources and our own strength rather than on you. Help us, Lord, to call on your Spirit. Help us to bear fruit through your Spirit. Help us as a church to help each other to shoulder each other's burdens, to help each other grow in your fullness. We pray for that in Jesus' name.